Families and businesses across the West are feeling the burden of high energy costs, especially in California, where electricity rates are the third highest in the country. At the same time, we're dealing with the effects of extreme weather and climate change. This means more demand on our grid from hotter temperatures and colder temperatures, leaving us with big bills, blackouts, and sometimes both. In fact, California has had more blackouts than any other state over the last two decades, and in 2022 alone, the state accounted for almost 25% of all power outages nationwide. So what can policymakers do to make our energy more reliable and more affordable? How can California build an energy grid for the future? We'll talk about a potential three-letter solution to our state's power woes coming up on this episode of Getting to Know RTO. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. My name is Leah Rubin Shen, and I'm a Managing Director at Advanced Energy United. I'm excited to share that with us today is Bob Jenks, Executive Director of the Oregon Citizens Utility Board, also known as CUB. For anyone who isn't familiar with CUB, this is an independent statewide nonprofit that advocates for affordable, accessible, reliable, and clean utilities for people in Oregon. Bob started working for CUB in 1991 and has participated in nearly every major Oregon Public Utility Commission case since that time, including dozens of cases dealing with utility mergers, rates, resource planning, and climate change. So as rates are skyrocketing all across the West, we thought it was important to talk to Bob and share more about how a regional energy grid could affect rates. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, glad to be here. I'm excited to uh, to get into some of these topics. So as you know, for the most part, states in the West don't currently participate in a regional electric grid or a regional transmission organization. Can you talk a little bit about how ratepayers are affected by electricity rates under the current system? Yeah, under the current system, uh, each utility has to solve all its problems on its own. And the consequences of that have been rates have been going up pretty dramatically. Uh, here in, in, in Oregon, we've seen our major two utilities both coming off increases about 20%. Last year, we'll see similar increases this year. And for customers who have our energy challenged, energy burden challenged, that becomes a serious, serious problem being able to absorb those kinds of rate increases, a 20, 25% increase that happens on January 1st in the middle of your uh, winter heating bill. Uh, is really, really hard uh, if you live paycheck to paycheck to absorb. And what happens year after year, customers are really, really struggling right now. And some of those rate hikes are coming, uh, really come from the consequences of it's pretty inefficient for every utility to have to transition to 100% clean energy, deal with the cost of intermittency, dealing with the cost of storage and other things to try to uh, handle that intermittency, uh, deal with the transmission necessary to bring new resources to serve its territory. And so we're building up these isolated, inefficient systems rather than trying to do something that may be more efficient and at a lower cost. Right. I'm really glad that you brought up the challenges with transitioning to 100% clean, because of course, that's something that, that we're also thinking a lot about as it's now summer, we're seeing extreme heat in the West, and headline after headline warning about the stress that this is going to cause for the grid. And the utilities keep saying they have to build more energy generation resources that rely on fossil fuels in order to meet peak demand during extreme heat and keep the lights on. But we know this isn't a sustainable solution. So what insight can you offer on this perspective of continuing to rely on fossil fuels? And what does sticking to the status quo mean for ratepayers? I mean, sticking to the status quo is, is obviously problematic. But fundamentally, we have to go to a, a clean energy economy. 
climate change is out there. It's it's real. I'm an advocate for customers. I'm not a climate activist, but I accept the reality that that we've got to be building an energy system, an energy economy that fits the future, not one that fits the past. And it's problematic. You you mentioned sort of how do we deal with this huge demand in, in summer and summer heat waves. Summer is actually relatively easy because we do know that on hot days, you have solar power being generated. We know with battery storage, we can move that solar power from the late afternoon to the early evenings uh, when people turn on the air conditioners. What scares the heck out of me as a consumer advocate is winter space heating needs. We don't have solar output at 6 a.m. in January 15th. Uh, We regulate periods in in the winter. We'll have four or five days with no wind or very little wind. And those tend to correspond with the coldest day uh, that we have in the Northwest. Battery storage that lasts days is is not really an option right now. There is pumped hydro, other things that are potentially out there. But how how are we going to meet an individual winter peaks and and space heating load uh, as we move forward? Uh, A lot of folks talk about electrification of the natural gas system, uh, which which again, is going to be necessary if we're going to uh, decarbonize our energy economy. But uh, that puts uh, more heat pumps and more electric heating load that we've got to find a way to meet. And, and that's going to be a real challenge for us. Solar doesn't, doesn't do it. Wind isn't, the current wind resources in the Northwest aren't enough. We need to look offshore. We need to look to the Rocky Mountains. We need to get a much wider footprint in order to manage our, our winter heating load, and, and that's going to take transmission, that's going to take sharing, and that's really going to take a, a regional grid. Great. Well, as you know, conversations about establishing a regional grid in the West are gaining momentum. California Governor Gavin Newsom recently expressed his support for working together regionally. A couple of years ago, both Colorado and Nevada passed legislation to require the utilities to join regional energy grids. And if I recall, Oregon also passed a bill requiring at least the, requiring the state to study the issue. So, you know, this is a conversation that's happening in multiple places. You know, you mentioned that, that an RTO could really sort of help meet some of these, these needs as we increasingly electrify. And how could that really change the dynamic for ratepayers in the West? It should, it should lower the costs. I mean, the, to me, the, the benefit of, of a regional grid is it brings in efficiencies that each individual utility doesn't have on their own. And that should uh, lower cost overall in the system. And if we're lowering costs across the West, then that should translate in, into lower electric bills for the kinds of residential customers that I represent. In, in this part of the country, we, we've been, we're slow in the late 90s, early aughts, when a lot of the country was moving towards RTOs and regional grids. In the Pacific Northwest, we were slow to jump on that bandwagon. A, a lot of us saw that as, as something that was sort of good, but not, not necessarily something that was necessary. But at the time, we were still coming off of a really robust hydro system. We built up the hydro system. We overbuilt uh, hydro generation for decades from the 30s through the 60s in the Northwest. Uh, we have the federal hydro system, but a lot of our utilities have huge hydro systems. Idaho Power does, Avista does, public power utilities like Douglas County PUD in Washington has huge hydro resources. British Columbia has huge hydro resources. And what it meant was when I started in the 90s, we didn't worry about capacity. We didn't worry about ever meeting peak load. When we did resource planning, it was about how much energy do we need on an annual basis? And knowing if we have enough energy on an annual basis, the hydro system can move it around. The hydro system can meet those peaks and we'll be fine. It really wasn't until the last decade or two where we've started to have to think about 
capacity and how do we meet those those peak resources? So that really, I think, is is part of why why we in the the Northwest have been slow to do this. But I also think the hydro system shows some of the real value of this. We have immense hydro resources here. A lot of that's used simply to serve energy. It's not used for capacity. And, and the amount of energy in a hydro system can vary widely from year to year. We have an 80% of normal hydro years. We have 120% of normal hydro years. So there's a, how much energy they produce, but they have an, an immense amount of capacity that they can produce at their peak. And right now, we don't utilize that capacity very well. The reservoirs are storing energy, the snowpack storing energy. But what we really need, what a regional market would do is it would allow us to monetize that capacity, to recognize that if I use hydro now, I'm not going to have that available uh, later when that capacity may be more valuable. So there's a lost opportunity and start to try to monetize that in a way that creates real benefits for our utilities in this region who have those hydro resources and incent them not to simply use it to serve a data center at 3 a.m. when there's other power available, but utilize it to best serve really the the, the capacity needs of the West. And and it really is one big, huge freaking battery. And we do not utilize it enough in this region, yet alone uh, utilize it across the Western United States. It sounds like at least partly what you're talking about here is that, you know, as we, you know, sort of get a broader footprint over which we can share these resources, you can kind of have more flexibility about what resources you use when and and sort of diversify. And so, you know, you can use the hydro when when that's, you know, kind of what's really available. But if the sun's shining really, you know, a lot in the Southwest, you know, then maybe that's a time to use more solar. So could you kind of talk about how the resources might diversify more if we have a, a broader market? Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, we could utilize, you got the whole California duck curve that everyone's been talking about for for more than a decade. When there's excess solar coming out of California, we should back down on the hydro system and utilize that and save that hydro, that, that hydro is stored energy and save that for later. And then have, and, and when you have a summer peak issue, we ought to be able to utilize that. Now, to, to do that well, we need more transmission across the West. And we need somebody who's planning and allocating and dispatching these resources across that wider footprint. And that's really what what regionalization is about. It's about putting in transmission, not to serve the needs of each individual utility, because that won't add up to the best regional solutions. But look at what are the right transmission corridors, where do we need it to meet regional needs, and then have somebody dispatching those resources in a way that best serves uh, folks across the country, recognizing that, again, there's payments back for those. It's not if the hydro from my utility is being used to serve a needed peak in California after the sun goes down, that's okay because I'm being compensated by it. And in a time I may need power, the power is going to be a a cheaper price. And so overall, my utility comes out ahead, which leads to lower rates. Uh, We're serving those capacity needs and those peaking needs around the West. And everyone's leaning on each other. We have a, a different set of resources and California does a different set of resources than than the Southwest. Wyoming and Montana have some great wind resources. And if we can solve sort of transmission and other costs, uh, Northern California and Southern Oregon have a tremendous offshore wind potential. So there's different resources across the West. And what really works better when you can have a mixture of them, we're we're never going to do very well serving Oregon customers with just Oregon solar and Oregon wind because there's times when we don't have the wind blowing here, we don't have the sun shining here, but across the West, 
there's likely to be wind blowing just about any time. There's likely to be sun sh uh, shining just about any time. And if we can, again, have a good system where, where we're sharing those resources, we, sh we should end up with a much more efficient system and we should end up with significantly lower costs. Yeah, no, that all makes a ton of sense. You know, it sounds like, I mean, the benefits that you've outlined here include the cost savings, but then also sort of the increased reliability that you get from being able to draw on a wider range of resources. So given all of those potential benefits for ratepayers, I am curious as to why some advocates have been hesitant to endorse regionalization. Do you have any insight as to why some, you know, some of your peers, some other ratepayer advocates are not endorsing regional grid collaboration as a priority strategy? Oh yeah, no. I, there's, there's a variety of different reasons, but I, I think probably the, in, in my mind, the biggest problem with regionalization is a loss of power. I will be less powerful if an RTO if if we go to a regionalization. When you're do, doing things by state, I'm a statewide consumer advocate. I don't practice outside of Oregon, and in Oregon, I'm a big fish. I represent residential customers. Oregon statute, Oregon law allows me to intervene in any PUC proceeding uh, to represent customers, to go to the legislature to uh, represent customers. Uh, if I call up a PUC commissioner, they'll return my call. Legislators sometimes call me with questions on issues. It's exciting and it's, it's, it makes me feel important. Whereas if an RTO comes, I'm just one of several consumer advocates in the West. Oregon's not a very big state. We're at one tenth the size of California. We're not the big kahuna. Uh, here at all. And so I'm going to have less power. I'm going to have less influence. The RTOs tend to be dominated by sort of special interests, big, powerful folks in, in the region who, who have uh, big utility bills or trying to sell power or trying to build transmission lines or other things. And around the country, if you look at consumer advocates around the country, they hate their RTOs. Their RTOs aren't accessible. They're arrogant. They're large. They're hard to deal with. They're complicated. They're not located in the state, so you've got to travel for meetings. There's all kinds of problems. But but that's all separate from the issue of do they create efficiencies and lower costs? And ultimately, if I have to give up some of my power and influence to get lower costs in a more rational electric grid and a cleaner environment in face of climate change then that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. But that, that really, in my mind, is, is, is what some of this comes down to, is I lose power and influence, but the people I represent benefit. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's, it's like you were saying earlier, you know, that the efficiencies come and, the, and thus the cost lowering come when we do have the sharing more across the region. And, you know, that is kind of counter to what you're saying, you know, and sort of maintaining all of that power within the state. So that does make a lot of sense. You mentioned that consumer advocates elsewhere in the country, you know, hate their RTOs. One of the things that we talk about a lot in the West, I'm sure you've heard people say that say this is that, you know, we want an RTO sort of for the West, designed by the West, you know, mm -hmm. that we have an opportunity to improve on how other RTOs have done things in the past by, you know, making the, you know, the RTO 2.0 out here or whatever you want to call it, you know, sort of building a better RTO. Do you have any perspectives on how an RTO in the West could be a better experience for consumer advocates and ultimately make you better advocates for your ratepayers? I think we can solve some of the problems that have made RTOs inaccessible. Uh, I think the governance structure is going to be important trying to create the West is big. It's it's spread out in 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 the Northeast. You can take a train from almost anywhere to one of the big cities where the meetings may be held in in the West. It requires flights and overnights and things like this. I definitely think there's things we can do. We can provide funding for people to attend meetings. We can we can do a variety of things, I think, to try to make it more accessible. Uh, we can work to try to create more collaborative institutions that help guide 
the RTO and make it work. I think we've done the EIM, some of what we've done in sort of baby steps in that direction, I think have, have gotten people used to working together. So, so there's definitely things we can do and it does make conversations around governance and structures and how states give input, how, how states impact this, because states will still be the ones setting rates, will still be the ones doing a lot of energy policy. So it really needs to be done in a way that, that is, is tied to the states and the states have the ability to influence and impact. I think we can look at other places around the country and say, here are some of the mistakes they've made and avoid those and, and do better. But in the end, it still is likely going to mean I have a bit less power, but the customers I represent have, have lower rates. You mentioned that you've done some of these these things in the EIM that have, in, in your mind, have sort of made it a better process. Can you talk a little bit more, more about what those are? Well, the, the EIM, I just, the first thing is I think it's run by the, by CAISO, but CAISO sort of gave up some of the control of it and formed sort of a regional body to oversee and, and govern the EIM. And to me, that's the first step is trying to sort of make it a little bit more democratic governance. The most important part of the EIM, I think, is it's a lesson that efficiency is lower costs, that there's benefits uh, when you can share dispatch, even on a very small time scale that is fairly limited. I think the, the benefits of moving towards day ahead and, and sort of larger dis- dispatch will be even greater. And particularly, that's what I think starts to tap into the value of, of the hydro system. So, I mean, we've chatted a lot. You've, you've given us a lot of information about, you know, sort of what the potential benefits to ratepayers could be for an RTO or from an RTO, I should say. So as conversations about regionalization continue to take shape in the West, you know, if ratepayers really care about this, what can they do to make sure their voices are being heard by regulators and other state decision makers? People should be involved in organizations that help sort of amplify their voice. That's always sort of a, a, a more effective way to do it, join with others. And there's a variety of grassroots groups and things that are, are involved in this stuff. People can let their governor's offices know that this is important to them. They can let their utility commissions know that this is really important to them. And people can can talk about it and keep a dialogue going. Some, sometimes part of the problem for a lot of folks in the West is this is a really important issue. It's going to drive a lot of benefits to customers, but it's sort of locked inside the California legislature where we don't have a whole lot of power of trying to sort of uh, break out of the CAISO model that's that's existed, a one-state model, into something that's more regional. And I, I think that has made it somewhat more difficult for, for folks like me to be strong advocates for it because... I can advocate it to my governor and my governor says, yeah, I support it. Okay, what do you do next? And But I do think, do think all of that is helpful. We need to create momentum and we need to understand that having a clean decarbonized economy is going to require change. And this is going to be one of the fundamental ones that needs to happen in the West if we're going to get to where we want to get on climate. And we want to do it in a way that's affordable for customers. Bob, it's been really great chatting with you today. I just wanted to see if there is anything else you wanted to leave our listeners with before we close out. Not not too much. I, I think this is ultimately, we've got to look at this as, in, in my mind as something that has to happen. Just like decarbonization has to happen, electrification of buildings has to happen. There's a handful of building blocks that are fundamentally necessary to create that economy that's non-emitting. And, and this is just fundamentally one of them. And so we need, we need to roll up our sleeves and get this done because this is one of the building blocks that make other things possible. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. 
We are just about out of time for today's episode. I'd like to thank Bob again for joining us. Bob, we really appreciate your time and for offering your perspective on these issues. Great, I'm glad to. Again, my name is Leah Rubenshen, and you've been listening to Getting to Know RTO. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time. Getting to Know RTO is edited and produced by Advanced Energy United. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to turn on automatic downloads to get the latest episodes as soon as they're aired.